the history of our faith is a history of God's grace poured out on wretches. And I don't mean that in merely the theological sense. Sometimes we sing the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And what we mean is, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved an average sinner like me. In this sense, we believe ourselves to be wretches when our sin is set against the backdrop of God's holiness. In this sense, we are all wretches, of course, and so this sense of wretch isn't inappropriate. But when I say that our faith is a history of God's grace poured out on wretches, I mean wretches in the relative sense, relative to other men, not just to God. I mean that God saves the worst sorts of people, sometimes truly despicable people. And he's made a habit of it from the beginning. Just think about the apostles, just the apostles, right? Relatively small subset of people. Um, Matthew was a tax collector. I don't know if you've studied Rome, but basically the Roman Empire was built by the systematic and military oppression of native people groups. The Roman army would come, conquer, and leave a remnant so that any uprising would be decimated by unbelievable force. Do you know how they funded that effort? Taxes. And not, it's not that they would place a Roman tax collector in the village. They would actually enlist people who were a part of this native people group being subjugated and say, hey, look, man, if you collect taxes for us, you can take a cut from your brothers and sisters all for yourself. And we're not even going to regulate it very closely. Have fun. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon the Zealot. Do you know what Zealots were? Zealots were a terrorist group that expressed their political opinions by hiding knives in their cloaks and going into the public square during meetings and stabbing their political enemies. Did you know that? Not to mention Paul, who was obviously too self-righteous to actually pick up stones and throw them at Stephen while he was preaching the gospel... But he would say, here, let me, let me hold your, your coats so they don't get dirty while you murder a righteous man. That's Paul. Paul actually got letters so that he could go to villages and um, uh, force families to confess to breaking the law so that they go to prison for being Christians. That's just among the apostles. Wretched men. It seems fated that the kingdom of Christ will be filled with the sort of people that I might not have invited over for tea. The sort of people that you might have crossed the street to avoid. The Spirit changes these men, of course. Glory upon glory. But the fact of the thing doesn't make me less uncomfortable. When atheists challenge the veracity of our faith by claiming that some of the most revered personalities in Christian history had serious moral failings. 
you must admit that they are right. Because God saves wretches. It is his way. You might even say that the end of redemption is not the praise of the redeemed, but the praise of the Redeemer who would spend his blood to save such a wretched lot like us. I bring this up because the fact that God saves wretches ought to influence how we read the Old Testament, but sometimes it doesn't. We seem bent toward reading the stories of Abraham or Moses or Samson as hero stories. Though they are most certainly not heroes in the traditional sense, they were wretches, but God saved them anyway. Few figures in the scriptures aren't wretches, actually. Not even David. Last week we explored the wilderness between the kingdom of Saul and the kingdom of David. We studied the seven-year period between day one of David's kingdom in Judah and day one of David's kingdom in, over all Israel. It was a period of civil war punctuated by breathtaking displays of violence and treachery and vengeance. Yet David remained spotless throughout. Well, okay, that's what I said anyways. Um, but I want to take a minute to footnote those words. David wasn't spotless. And I don't mean that just broadly. I mean in this specific story, in this seven-year period of civil war, David failed the people of Israel at least in one big way. So what I don't mean is that David was righteous without sin throughout this season. What I mean is that David was relatively spotless. That he was, compared to Ishbosheth or Abner or the elders of Israel or Joab, spotless, virtuous, clearly the most capable man among them to lead the people of Israel in this specific season. But today we're going to focus on one huge way that David failed the people of Israel in this season of civil war. And it's going to be at least a little weird and at least a little complicated because we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about polygamy. (laughs) Yes, I said polygamy. Today we're going to be discussing Or perhaps the better word is condemning the practice of polygamy. That is, we're going to be discussing how and why the scriptures condemn the practice of marrying more than one woman. So I want to address the elephant in the room at the beginning. And then we'll just set it aside to loom in the background. Let me begin by making a a few broad statements about polygamy. First, marrying more than one woman was common in the ancient Middle East. So was the practice of keeping a concubine for sexual gratification. So was the practice of slavery. So was the practice of spousal abuse. In other words, a thing being common makes it no less reprehensible. And second, despite the efforts of some to baptize the practice of polygamy by associating it with God's instructions to be fruitful and multiply, the Bible is clear that perverse sexual gratification, manipulative political and social networking, and 
the general objectification of human beings were also major, if not primary, motivations to marrying more than once. In other words, to address the elephant in the room, yes, I am suggesting that to the the degree that anyone in the Bible, including Abraham, including Jacob, including David, married more than once, they were in sin, violating the spirit of God's covenant and provoking God's wrath. And I want to be clear here. Not everyone agrees with those statements. So I want to work together to discuss how I got there. The first thing you need to know is that the law never once says, don't marry more than one woman. But I've just made the claim, with some confidence, that polygamy is reprehensible. So the first obstacle before us is this. How do we call something evil if the law doesn't explicitly do so? And that's a good question. And before we try and answer it, I want to read a few paragraphs with you from the Gospel of Matthew. So, would you mind turning with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Hold up your Bible when you get there. Matthew 5, 27. See, you know, you guys are a lot faster when you have it printed in the bulletin, but when I, like, change it up a little bit and just randomly throw out a scripture, it's more... I don't, I don't feel so bad for taking longer. To... Okay, Matthew five let Let's read together. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, I have heard, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform the, uh, to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Okay, so we just read the words of Jesus, who reviews three statements or inferences from the law, back to back to back. And in each case, he begins with the same words. You have heard that it was said. In other words, you've read these words in the scriptures. And at this point, you might expect for Jesus to say, here's what that means. Yet what he actually says is, but I say to you. And that's a huge deal. Because he's speaking to a crowd of people who have been taught to honor the law as a pure reflection of the holiness of God. So when Jesus recites the words of the Ten Commandments and then he says, but I say to you, 
He's either speaking with the authority of God himself or he's blaspheming at the highest level. And listen to Jesus' words. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. And then he says, You've also said, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. And then he says, Again, you've heard it said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What's fascinating about Jesus' words is the implication that his audience has completely misunderstood the law. At the very least, what Jesus is suggesting is that the law is not a comprehensive list of all the things that men and women are forbidden to do. Jesus goes beyond the law. Even to look at a woman with lust is, in fact, adultery. Divorcing a woman for nearly every reason is wicked. Taking any oath at all proceeds from an evil heart. These statements are beyond the text of the law. Literally, the teaching of Christ is beyond the law, something higher than, more than, deeper than the text of the law. And if you intend to follow Jesus, you must look beyond the law also. There's another passage that clearly outlines what I mean to communicate. So I'd like you to turn to Matthew 19, verse 39. Read with me. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? But he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Okay, so look. The Pharisees, who perhaps spent more time studying the Bible than anyone in Israel, felt as if they had caught Jesus in a Bible trap. Because they've heard him teach that anyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. But they know, because they practically memorize the scriptures, that the law allows divorce. So they're like, hey Jesus, aren't we allowed to divorce? And Jesus says, no. Remember the story of creation. God made man and woman one flesh. And who are we to rip apart what God has woven together? And that's when they spring the Bible trap. They say, no, Jesus, look here, right in Deuteronomy. See, Moses allowed us to divorce our wives. And that's when the bomb drops. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. 
The law says what it says because of your hardness of heart. Those words were written the way they were written because you're wicked. The law wasn't given to teach people everything that they weren't allowed to do. The law was given to keep the people of Israel from being as outwardly wicked as they wanted to be. The Pharisees believed that they would be spotless if only they kept themselves from doing literally the things that the law told them not to do because they misunderstood the law. The law is there to keep you from outright, outward displays of wickedness, not to make you righteous. The law doesn't have what it takes to make you righteous. It's there to teach you what your heart it's there to teach you that your heart is wicked and to keep you from being as outwardly wicked as your heart wants you to be. The law is there to restrain outright wickedness. That's why Deuteronomy 24 allowed people to divorce their wives because the people's hearts were hard. And so Moses restrained their outward wickedness by refusing to allow men to to, to completely abandon their wives whenever they felt like it. By facilitating a legal process for divorce, Moses was protecting the subjugation of wives to the wickedness of their husbands. The law was a gift to restrain the outward wickedness of man. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, you want to know what purity and holiness looks like in marriage? Don't look to the restrictions of the law. That's given to restrain your wickedness. Do you want to know what purity and holiness looks like? The world before sin. Marriage before sin. That's what purity looks like. The restraints of the law aren't a vision of holiness. The restraints of the law are prison bars. Meant to hold your outward wickedness captive. Until a redeemer comes who can save you from your sin. Paul says the same thing in Galatians. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Paul uses two word pictures to explain the law. He says it's like a teacher, a pedagogue kind of like a guardian, the law teaches us who we are. It teaches us about the sin in our hearts. It teaches us about our desperate need for a savior. That's one word picture. The other is that of a prison. The law is like a prison, keeping us captive until Christ comes to free us. That's, I think, what Jesus is touching on in Matthew. The law is like a prison, It was written to address the wickedness in our hearts and to restrain men from outright expression of that wickedness until the time that we might be freed from that wickedness. Now let's circle back to my original claim. My claim is that polygamy is reprehensible even though the law doesn't outright forbid the practice of polygamy. I'm basing this claim on two biblical arguments. First, the pure and holy portrait of marriage, which Jesus references above, is the portrait of marriage we're given in the story of creation before sin cracks the world. And that portrait features one man and one woman who are united as one flesh. 
Not to be divided by anyone. The one flesh union is not to be shared or divided or severed by anyone for any reason except perhaps adultery. Sex with another is an act of violence against the one flesh union that God established and is therefore wicked. And two, Jesus says that the law doesn't comprehensively forbid all outright expressions of wickedness, just some. The people of Israel were so wicked that some bad things were facilitated, like legal divorce, in order to protect them from further, more despicable outright displays of their wickedness. Polygamy wasn't explicitly and strictly forbidden in the law for the same reason that legal divorce wasn't strictly forbidden in the law because of Israel's hardness of heart. In the beginning, it was not so. So what I want to do now is read a few passages in the law that actually do forbid certain types of polygamy. And then I want to show you that David has ignored these restrictions to his shame and to his kingdom's destruction. I want to prove to you that David was a wretched polygamist. And then I want to explain to you how that is in its own way good news. So let's get started. I'm going to read two passages consecutively. We're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you want to read together with me, that's fine, but we're now at like our sixth passage, so I'm okay if you just want to listen. Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away the nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So we've actually touched on this passage a few times since reading Samuel. Because Saul's kingdom crumbled when he refused to obey this passage. Basically, this text teaches us that the people of Israel were forbidden from making any sort of covenant with the people of the land. They weren't allowed to ally themselves to the the wicked ancient inhabitants of Canaan on any level. And most explicitly, they weren't allowed to marry the daughters of these wicked people. These daughters would lead them to idolatry and God's wrath would be kindled to their destruction. There is no ambiguity here. To marry any daughter of a Canaanite was to violate the covenant and to provoke the wrath of God. Alright, let's keep reading. This is from Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14.
When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never turn that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. This passage is pretty straightforward. The king may not marry many wives, quote, lest his heart turn away. And while this restriction may seem arbitrary to you and I, it's actually pretty significant because national alliances were formed in marriage. Kings married countless times because a marriage between a representative of two nations formalized and strengthened alliances between them. So kings would take at least as many wives as they had allies. But the law of God forbid this practice. The kings of Israel were not allowed to seek security in the alliances of pagan nations. And they are not allowed to marry many times, lest their hearts turn away from God. This, in other words, repeats the warnings that we just read, but applies those warnings specifically to the king of Israel. All right, I think we're ready for our passage. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 3. Second Samuel chapter 3. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. And his second, Chileab, of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Tilmai, king of Jeshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, Sephatiah, we'll just go with that, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrium of Eglah. David's wife. They were born to David in Hebron. All right, so there's a few features worth noting right away. First, David, who is now king in Hebron, quickly marries four times. And I think it's important to think about this logistically. When he arrives at Hebron, he does so with only Abigail. And Ahinoam. Now, unless they were each eight months pregnant when they arrived, which doesn't seem likely, and unless David married all four women around the same time, which doesn't really seem likely, barring the unlikely, at least a few times 
in Hebron, David was preparing for his wedding day while celebrating the birth of his most recent child while comforting his pregnant wife. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not as simple as merely David has six wives. This is a social situation that is tragic and tremendously complex and in no way could David have cared for the needs of any of his pregnant wives while celebrating the birth of any of his children while preparing to marry another woman. This was a family whose sole purpose was accomplishing David's political ends and gratifying David's sexual desires. David was spending his family on himself. And that is the opposite of the biblical purpose of marriage. The one flesh union to which he was called was being torn to shreds. And now what remained was a machine to accomplish David's ends, though it meant suffering and culminated in the destruction of his kingdom. I'm getting ahead of myself. Take a look at the list of firstborn children. You've got the firstborn of uh, Abigail, uh, the firstborn of Hinnom, and then the third something unexpected happens. The firstborn, wait for it, from Makah, the daughter of the king of Jeshur. Now, why, why do I remember that name? Oh, right. The Jeshurites. You know, Canaanites. Ancient inhabitants of the land. Just a few chapters ago, we read that David and his men were systematically raiding Jeshurite villages because they were enemies of God's people. In Joshua 13, the people were commissioned to drive out the inhabitants of the land by the might of God. And the very first group of people mentioned was the Jeshurites. And in the first passage that we just read this morning, alliances with the Jeshurites were strictly forbidden. And the people were warned to never, ever marry their daughters. Look, it isn't a coincidence that David's first major decision when he stepped into power as a king of Judah was to secure a forbidden alliance with a pagan nation. And it isn't a coincidence that the child of this union would eventually overthrow his kingdom and cast him out of the promised land. David was warned not to take many wives, lest his heart be tempted and he provoke the wrath of God. And David was warned not to marry the wives of this nation, lest his heart be tempted and he provoked the wrath of God. David was warned not to establish alliances with the inhabitants of this land, lest his heart be tempted and he provoked the wrath of God. David ignored these warnings and it toppled his kingdom. Absalom is the firstborn son of this union. And we'll spend the next few months exploring the treachery of, of Absalom, whose influence split the kingdom and whose treason overthrew the throne. 
But all you need to know right now is that David strayed from the covenant and the rebellion of Absalom was a consequence of his sin. This short paragraph is sandwiched by David's exemplary conduct in the midst of Israel's civil war. And that's on purpose. The book of Samuel is always doing two things. It's teaching that David is a grim shadow of the coming kingdom. And it's teaching you that David is not that coming king. We get glimpses of the righteous reign of Jesus when God's people proclaim that David is the rightful king over Israel. And we get glimpses of the virtue of King Jesus when David graciously forgives his enemies and welcomes them into a kingdom of peace. But the story won't allow us to forget that David is not the coming Messiah. He's wretched in his own way. He has cast aside the beautiful model of marriage and replaced it with a machine subservient to his political ends and sexual passions. David is not the Messiah. I told you a moment ago that David was a wretched polygamist and that was, in its own way, good news. Here's what I mean. David's moral failures teach us that he was not the promised king. So David's moral failures teach us to look in hope toward a better king. The sin of David teaches us to scan the horizon for the son of David. And the son of David is a perfect husband. Let me read you something from Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives... As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does with the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. That mystery is fulfilled in Christ's redemption of his people. How should husbands love their wives? What is the ideal? Perfect husbands love their wives in this perfect way. Like Christ loved the church. Christ is the vision of a perfect husband. The entire institution of marriage was designed to teach people what Christ was like. How perfectly Christ loved cared for, spent his life on, washed, and sanctified his bride. The love of Christ is the love of the perfect husband, and he will present his bride, the church, to himself 
without spot or wrinkle. Not because of her virtue, but because of his sacrifice. When we see David sacrifice his bride to serve himself, it teaches us to look in hope to the son of David who sacrificed himself to serve his bride. And that's why it's good news. The failure of David is good news to God's people because we have a better husband, Christ, who gave himself up for us, who washes us and sanctifies us and makes us spotless, ready for the wedding feast of the Lamb. I want to repeat something I just said because the application will hinge on it. David sacrificed his bride to serve himself. Jesus sacrificed himself to serve his bride. Husbands, what does your marriage look like? Are you spending your wife on you or are you spending yourself on her? Think hard. Think critically. Do you envision your wife as the means to accomplish your objectives? Or do you see your life and breath and time and resources as an opportunity to serve her? Have you given yourself up for her? Because that's the vision. That's the biblical vision of marriage. Anything less is David territory. I think our culture is what it is in part because husbands aren't dying for their wives. It isn't always some grand gesture, some final expression of self-sacrifice. Most days the work of giving yourself up for your bride works itself out in the mundane. Groceries, parenting, household chores, family Bible studies, time spent, conversations had, phones turned off. Spend yourself on her. It's your chief opportunity to embody the gospel in your neighborhood and in your church and in your workplace. When you take a vacation day to give her time away, you're embodying the gospel. When you wake early to pray over her, you're embodying the gospel. When you send her away for much needed fellowship, even though you're tired too, you're embodying the gospel. Anything less than total self-sacrifice is David territory. The application isn't don't be a polygamist. I mean, good job, guys. But that's not the application. The application is don't do marriage like David did. That's not the application. The application is do marriage like the son of David did. Give yourself up for her. And then also, secondarily, trust the God who saves wretches. God chose to use David to foreshadow the coming kingdom. He chose to do it, even though David was, at least in some ways, wretched. 
And the history of redemption is punctuated by the lives of wretched men and women saved by grace. He does it on purpose. We must trust Him. He does it on purpose to teach us the magnitude of Christ's love. The blood of the Son of God was spent on behalf of these. Rather than despairing when you reflect on the remaining sin of brothers and sisters, might you turn your gaze to the breathtaking display of mercy that is Christ spending His blood on them. Amen? Let's celebrate that blood spent and that kingdom coming at the table. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.